Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday things. Uh, I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. What's up? Oh, I also forgot to say, because I always forget to say, (laughs) (laughs) but this does not make us any less proud to be members of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. I'm just bad at intros. We're very excited, and we're even more excited to be joined today by Megan Linton, who is the host of the Invisible Institutions podcast, which explores the ongoing institutionalization of persons with disabilities across Canada. Hey, Megan, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. I think you're great at intros. (laughs) (laughs) You're so kind. I'm very excited to have Megan. Uh, We just found out that her, her first episode will be launching the day that we launch this episode so everyone can go check her out like immediately upon listening to this and it makes me feel better because like I didn't listen to her show beforehand and now I've realized that I couldn't have so thank god <laughs> did all the pre-listening required yes <laughs> Kyla didn't do the pre-listening but there wasn't any so <laughs> oh man so Megan, um, would you like describe yourself as a, a dis- disabilities activist or what would what would sort of your description for yourself be? I'm a writer, researcher, and I also organize with the Disability Justice Network of Ontario and do some organizing here in Ottawa. Nice. Oh, yeah. Ottawa. How's <laughs> <laughs> <was> that going? <laughs> Well, you were both lucky because yesterday there was a a sound injunction filed, so right. they can't honk <laughs> as much anymore. So that's a little bit better. <laughs> yes, it's great timing because I moved back to uh, Ottawa tomorrow. So, <laughs> oh, I missed wow. the entire honking. <laughs> Don't worry, there's still plenty. No. <laughs> okay. So uh, we're going to be talking about, I guess, disabilities justice sort of broadly today. Um, and I think we'd wanted to start with talking about deinstitutionalization. So I guess, Megan, I'll start by asking you, what does it mean when, like, to say that people with disabilities are institutionalized? Like, can you explain that to us? I mean, I think we typically, when we talk about institutions, we think of them as these like really giant places that don't really exist anymore. But institutions for disabled people include like a much wider range of places than just those really large settings. So when we talk about institutionalization, we're talking both about the process of primarily about the process of removing people with disabilities from their communities, um, isolating them into large or small institutions and congregating and confining them in these settings. Bonus points for like it being the lowest cost possible. And so there's a lot of different institutions, but some examples would be like long-term care um, settings, which I think where people are most familiar with, but then also lots of different places like group homes, forensic psychiatric institutions, um, psychiatric wards, and also the remnants of the older institutions that still exist. So In quite a few provinces, they still have large-scale institutions for people labeled with developmental disabilities. And so all of those different places together are really like what institutions are. But the process is, again, that removal, the segregation, and the congregation. And and can you tell me a little bit about sort of like what the harms are associated with taking those kinds of approaches? So, I mean, I think that there's many harms associated, but I think there's like two different types. So the first harm is removing disabled people from their communities. And I think it's important, like both as abolitionists do and also as people in the disability justice do, of recognizing like the harm that that causes to the community that people are in. So like the loss that we experience when disabled people aren't part of our communities because then we're, of course, not having a society where we like learn to adapt and change and learn about all the different strengths of people. And then there's, of course, the the harm of removing people from their communities. So if we look at either our like transit system or where lots of these institutions are, they're like really hard for families to get to, regardless like if the institution so before it, institutions were like largely outside of the city, 
So just like prisons, like they're hard to get to. And so communities aren't really like able to access their family members and and see them. And of course, we know during COVID that's been especially hard. But and then there's the harms associated with being in a congregate institutional setting. Um, So I really focus on like three, um, which is one, the access and ongoing use of restraints. So like group homes, psychiatric institutions, forensic psychiatric institutions, and long-term care homes, and of course prisons, all have the ability and the right to use both physical restraints against people. So that means like things like helmets or um, being locked to your wheelchair or being held in restraints in, in bed or like physical restraints also. So that's a specific way of holding people. Um, But then also access to other types of restraints um, that we predominantly see today, which are like chemical. So the like mass prescription of sedating drugs in all of these places where it's like in society, maybe like 20% of people or like 10% of people would be I think it's two. It's like 2% of people are prescribed. In these places, there's upwards of 60% of people who are on these like really restrainive sedated drugs. And so, yeah. And, And of course, like we see then like the connections between all of them where it's like prisons, group homes, long term care homes and psych institutions. Everyone is prescribed the same drug. Why is that? It's not because they share disabilities or impairments. It's because they are all in these sites of incarceration. And then I think there's like, so I started doing this research because um, my my master's thesis and and the work that I did before was really about like access to sexuality. And so like if you're living in a group home or a psych unit or a long-term care home, they only give you single beds and like never give you access to privacy. And so there's also those harms of like not being able to have sex or like masturbate or be able to just chill in your own space because you're given no privacy and no real like autonomy over the way, over who cares for you and over who is around all the time and over what like your group home or long-term care homes uh, specific policies are. That's a really interesting development in your research to go from like access to sexuality to then focusing specifically on institutionalized disabilities. Like that's that's a very interesting step to have taken. Yeah. So so I moved to Ottawa like two and a half years ago, um, like five months before the pandemic started. And so I was like, okay, I'm in Ontario now. It it's really hard to do. I was gonna do my research based in Manitoba and like focus on the Manitoba Development Center, but then I was in Ontario and I was like, I'm never going to be able to get access to the archives there. Like it's, it's just going to be too hard. So I'm going to under try and focus on Ontario. And so institutions, like one of their first things um, and like why I was focusing on it was being places that you could remove and segregate people so that people couldn't have sex and reproduce. And so that was their like primary function was being places both where mass sterilization took place, like in Alberta and BC. Um, But then in Ontario, it was just like everything was sex segregated. And so people were never able to have um, children because they were removed and and kept segregated. So that's kind of like the starting point. And then I was like, okay, so I have to figure out like now where people live in Ontario. Where are people living? That's not the institution. And it was just like, really, really confusing because there was no information about where people were. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to like start a map. And then very quickly I got to like <laughs> the like, you know, guy explaining conspiracy theory board, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> being like, ah, okay, so there's this place and this place and this place. And it was just like so overwhelming. And then so many, and then COVID started and it was like, all of these places that I was mapping out before to try and figure out what people's access to sexuality was, which is dependent on, you know, like closeness to city, geographic access, and uh, like access to privacy. And then it's like, oh, all of those things are the things that really increase people's risk of COVID-19 because it's, it's about closeness of people together, how many people are living there. And I like 
had started making this giant map and then was like, oh, my God, I'm the only person with this map. And none of these people are included in, like, the vaccine rollout. And also, like, I think, to be very clear, uh, like, the, the conditions in these institutions are so fucking horrifying that, like, it's not something you can really, like, turn away from once you start to see it all. And so that that's how I got to institutions. And I, I like, stay focused there because there, there is so much bad shit that happens that, like, is never reported on. Like, it's, like, like one of these types of places, they're called domiciliary hostels. And in every city, they have a different name. And so you just, like, literally can't find any information about them. Have have you had a chance to speak to many people who who have stayed or are staying in these places? Yeah, absolutely. So the podcast that I made and uh, most of the work that I do is like connecting with uh, folks inside. But it honestly is way more challenging than you think because none of these places have internet access. That alone feels like a Victorian punishment. Like, <laughs> like having internet is kind of like part and parcel to existing in the world today. Exactly. Exactly. And like one of the weird things, too, about institutions is they have their own like welfare system. And so if you're a dis- disabled person outside of an institution, you're condemned to poverty, obviously, like ODSP is like $1,100 a month. But if you're inside an institution, you're at like another level of poverty, um, where you're only given an allowance that's like dispensed by your landlord. And it's $149 a month in Ontario. And most of these places are rural. So if you live in a rural town and are getting $149 a month, there's no way you can get access to internet. So then you're like, oh my God, I can't. Like, it's. <laughs> Bell won't even let me set up a modem for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's, I mean, a challenge. But yeah, uh, the conditions inside are, are very bad. Um, and I'm really grateful to have worked with, to get to work with and like alongside people who have either survived uh, these places or are still like fighting for their right to get out of them. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like why the institutions, I mean, we could talk about like why institutionalization in general is bad, but why are why are the conditions so bad? Is it just lack of attention? Is it governments don't want to pay money? Like what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, I would I would think like um I I I would just expect the general public's view on this to be like only the people who really can't take care of themselves are being sent to these places. But what I'm hearing from you is that, like, no, these people, like, they maybe need help, but they don't need to be treated like children. I, I'm not sure. I've, I literally don't know anything about these places. Yeah, um, I think I can get to both questions. Um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, fundamental to to all of this is really this belief of what um, this, like, amazing disability justice abolitionist Liette Ben-Bosch calls carceral ableism, which is the belief that in order to meet people's needs, um, their care needs or support needs, we need to remove them from their communities and segregate them into these settings. Um, And I think it like makes a lot of sense when you like factor in our conditions of capitalism, which means that the government see and know that disabled people who are unable to work are most valuable when they can become products when they can become beds that we're able to benefit a G- make a GDP off of. So it's like disabled people who aren't able to be included in capitalism or rehabilitated into capitalism are completely left to die in in conditions like this. And so it's like the conditions are so bad because institutions are always fundamentally built on being terrible <laughs> and and are maintained because like first there's like this like faulty bene- benevolence to it which i think like um you folks do a good job of of addressing in like lots of ways of like we think largely and like society thinks largely that group homes and like people caring for disabled people are good and it's like that has never been the truth institutions will always like be the same way that they are because of because of that view that like we're going to 
institutionalize people at the lowest cost possible and make as much money off of their um, body as possible. Yeah, I've noticed that like the language of prisons is something that um, both yourself and other sort of um, disabilities justice advocates have used. Is is that the idea there just to sort of invoke that the purpose is to sort of hide people with disabilities away from society in the same way that we shutter people in prisons? Or is there more going on? Yeah, um, for sure. That's a great question. So I think like disability justice advocates have really been working on connecting between these sites of incarceration, not because prisons and group homes are the same or prisons and long-term care homes are the same, but because they share those like carceral factors of needing to remove people we don't um, that we deem troublesome or deviant or um, burdensome and remove them and make them invisible and take away their rights and and do whatever else um, we can to to penalize them for not being part of this system of capitalism. And so, yeah, I think it's like it's more reflective of the fact that it's all along this, like what they can call the like continuum of confinement. And so where they're all rooted in the, in the same plan and the same goal and as a result have many of the same outcomes. And so deinstitutionalization when it started in the 1970s was really like not tied into abolitionist logics or goals or plans. Um, and so it failed because as long as we like keep another type of institution open, it'll just be used to continue to marginalize those same people into those same places. I think it's like important and necessary to like make them un like bound together so that because it's ultimately like recognizing that in order to abolish the systems that are are continuing to oppress and kill so many people, we have to target the root. And this is really like core to the root as well. So what would you like to see? Because I know, I mean, I don't actually know. I don't know anything, but I would, I assumed, and I might be wrong, that some people in these institutions really do need like constant 24-hour attention. Maybe that's not always true, but what would you like to see instead of the institutions? Like if you could see something else. In the 1970s, there was, you know, the the start of deinstitutionalization. And there was like really this view that like it would be easiest to like take the, the people most capable of living independently or interdependently and bringing them into the community first. And BC did it a lot differently where they were like, we are going to deinstitutionalize the people who require the most care, um, the people that we've like deemed complex, the people we've deemed hard to manage, and making sure that they are able to live in community. Because if we can deinstitutionalize the most complex cases or the most the people who require the most care, then we can do it all. Um, and that like worked. And so I mean, I think our demands like remain the same. And so the Disability Justice Network's called for um, the abolition of long-term care is like rooted in the need to um, nationalize housing and make housing uh, not a profit-based entity because... <laughs> like the number one thing that Canada could do to increase everybody's yeah. well-being, <laughs> not just like people with disabilities. Yeah, yeah exactly. Shit, just make exactly. houses available. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just do it. And that's like house, houses being available is like one of the number one reasons people are institutionalized. It's like, it's because there's no houses. Of course. Yeah, of course. That makes perfect sense. Like you walk around downtown Vancouver and you see a lot of people suffering and it makes sense that like a lot of those people could definitely live on their own, but then are probably being institutionalized instead because there's nowhere else to put them. Is that what's happening? Yes. Fuck yeah. me. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> just, just give everybody houses. I don't understand. There are so many empty flats in BC right now that are just like cash cows for foreign investors. And it's like, make them put people in them. <laughs> yeah, just put people in them. I think it, it makes me so angry because there's obviously so many open office buildings in downtown Ottawa. And it's like apartments in Ottawa are like disproportionately super inaccessible. And office buildings, it's like 
the most accessible places. They're just there's elevators everywhere. And you're like, this would be so good. This could house so many people, but instead, you're just gonna sit there. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Well, and they're all empty right now because of COVID. And because of COVID, yeah. we expect a lot of office buildings to remain empty forever now. And there was there was a lot being built, at least in BC that I see. That like, I'm like, what are you gonna do with this when it's built, buddy? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay well okay i was like i was like but but like why are people being institutionalized i was like really struggling to ha- wrap my head around that i'm like there must be a reason oh it's just because we have nowhere else to put people cool 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 yeah and so so i mean like the two things are number one there are not houses like there's i i think something like a hundred thousand people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are waiting for access to housing and the 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 federal government announced that they were building 4000 units for and it's like 4000 that's that's less than 1% like that's excellent cool 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 yeah but if you put 5 people in each house right <laughs> <laughs> that's still not even close to the right number math is hard when i just woke up <laughs> it's so hard all the time and and then the other thing is like there is no so little access to home care and to care work because number one people who do care work and who are doing home care are paid absolute garbage and are are not unionized so frequently and then like they have such stringent regulations of like if you get home care you can you can get it for like 50 hours a week and there's only like a 20% chance that you'll be able to get all of those 50 hours required and during that you won't be able to uh you can't leave the house when you have home care so if you're someone who needs support to leave the house you can't when you have home care so both of those things like the lack of houses and also the lack of home care are the things that like cause people and force people into institutions. That's so frustrating. Like that's so many jobs that the government could just create. Like, like just hire hire healthcare workers. I don't under, like. And I, like, so one of the things is like, okay, so there's this institution just outside of Winnipeg, and the union has fought for like so long to keep this institution open, and they've like largely been successful. It was kept open for like years longer than any other institution. But the thing, everyone's like, well, it's going to lose jobs. And the proposal that they had made to the government to close the institution increased the number of jobs in the area. Yeah. So it's like, it's obviously not about jobs You or you just want jobs where you're incarcerating people. Like that's, that, that's what you want. That's your desire. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, like the jobs would be better because instead of one person tending to 50 people, it's one on one, right? Or one person tending on three or four people in a day, right? Like, I don't understand how that could possibly be worse. I, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild how there are just sort of like overlapping layers of shit in this story. Like there's the dehumanization of people with disabilities. There's the sexism of not paying care workers enough. There's like, <laughs> we don't care about housing. <laughs> like uh yeah and then there's like the 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 layer where people are like oh but we want these jobs and it's like but the jobs that would be created by creating a better system would be better jobs better jobs (laughs) and like you where you don't have to like force feed people every day because you only have three minutes per person per meal like don't you want a job where you're not having to torture someone is that yeah, I feel like don't most people go into the healthcare system or to in even I'm sure people go into these institutions like with the intention of helping people for the most part. And then they become so warped and broken by the system that in the end, they're like begging to keep it open because they don't understand what life would be like without it. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, it's like you um, in the early pandemic, there was a few like viral posts of nurses saying like really gross things in long term care facilities. And it's like, this isn't something that somebody just does, I mean, hopefully does when they're coming into the job, but it's like, they've just been so 
like there's so much compassion fatigue that people completely stop caring for their patients. Which is horrible because like nobody goes into nursing school intending to punish people. Like you go into nursing school because you... Maybe Nurse Ratchet did, but... <laughs> Maybe, but I don't know. I feel like she probably had... She worked in an institution, Kristen. I feel like she probably went in like... <laughs> like you know like oh i can help these people and then you get there and it's like oh the system's so broken there's no helping anyone so i might as well just i'm just exhausted and i don't care anymore yeah i think it's all of those things and also there are a lot of really ableist people out there who like are really i mean i feel like lots of people know the story of like well there's two terrible stories but the first one is like the nurse who murdered a bunch of older people in long-term care institutions because nobody cares. And so there is often a like larger numbers of people who are part of the system who like have a desire to hurt marginalized people. There's um, an institution in London, Ontario that's still open. It's called the CPRI, the Child Parent Resource Institute. But it was originally... Child Psychiatric Research Institute or something. Anyway, it's super creepy. Look into it. But but they they just had a class action. And like part of the case is like there was a worker at the institution. There's workers at every single one of these institutions who in class action lawsuits, it'll come out that they like were, you know, hurling ableist uh, insults at people and like resulted in somehow like accidentally murdering someone and specifically had said multiple times before that like you do nothing for our economy like you shouldn't be alive and it's like oh my god this is (laughs) it's yeah and so like institutions I think you know are also places where people will work where they're like I have access to so many vulnerable people that obviously no one cares about because they're in these shit places uh and the governments don't care about them how do you how do you stay optimistic about studying this stuff (laughs) it's a real bummer (laughs) it's like it is unrelentingly bad it's someone said to me when when i was while i was doing this and it was like really really heartening where they're like when i moved to uh like capitalist as a country from um where i'm from you realize that there's endless layers of horror that it, like happen. And, you know, I still am, I'm still in the process of like getting through the layers. And every time I'm like, I'm at, I must be at the end of these layers of terrible. And then you turn over another rock. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, What's this sludgy thing? <laughs> yeah. Maybe on a more sort of positive note, I'd like to hear sort of like what, what would, Uh, Maybe we'll give long-term care as as an example. Like, what would it look like if we got rid of long-term care and replaced it with something better? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many amazing models, but I think, number one, it would look like having communities where our elders are, like, part of our movements and part of our organizing and part of our lives and, like, having more intergenerational possibilities of like learning and organizing and thinking together and also like would be increasing capacity for like care work and moving away from unnecessary jobs um, that are just bullshit. (laughs) Um, And I mean, having communities where there's so many different people with like different abilities and different capacities, I think would just be phenomenal. And also like, I'm just imagining the many beautiful different types of housing and like generational homes that can happen. I know like right now there's there's um, this growing movement of college students living with um, like older people in their homes and like not really paying rent. and doing some care work in the home. And like, that's so freaking cool. I get along so well with 75 year olds. So like, (laughs) that is ideal for me. But also like, I mean, even the way that I live where I like can't do dishes because my hands don't work very well. And, um, but like, I'm pretty good at cooking because 
like it's not that. <laughs> so, and so like living in these spaces where we are interdependent on each other and are not having to do every single thing because like we're all fucking worn down by neoliberalism and having to do every single thing to stay alive. Like it all is all by ourselves. All yes. by ourselves. Like it is bullshit. No one's ever lived this way before. And now we're all expected to live alone. And I live in a closet sized apartment with my partner who is going to school full time and working full time. And I am working full time. And then it's like, who, like, I'm not a person experiencing any disabilities, but I feel like I need help constantly and I don't have kids. Well, I mean, I, unless you count cats, but like, <laughs> which millennials do, let's be honest. <laughs> I would love to see like, like our families are so fractured. Our friends are so fractured. My my family lives all over the country and my friends live all over the world. And it's like, I feel like I'm surrounded by people who love me in the digital world, but I like we're all so lonely in our real worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And like I think that this is like a huge part of it is like creating communities where we like make each other meals and and like care for each other very like deeply and interdependently. That's like it's so nice to think about and I think what people hear when we say like abolish um so frequently is like hell and just chaos and it's like no like replace with something better <laughs> yeah there is a better way than just like the fucking hell we're living through right now that's what people don't understand when you say like abolish the police they're like oh but then what would who would do the police's job and it's like other people other people would do different things differently betterly <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you think that they do <laughs> they're literally just vibing and killing Killing people. That is their two jobs. <laughs> Taking pictures with white supremacists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I would love to see a world, honestly. Okay, if I was the dictator of Canada, I'm ready. Um, which everyone should vote for me. Thank you. Yes, I. that's my long term plan. If I was the dictator of Canada, I would be, first of all, a benevolent dictator. My partner says that that doesn't exist. And I'm like, mm, how many female dictators, though, have we had? Because that's really <laughs> what I want to see. <laughs> At least one, but. <laughs> <laughs> what i would do is i would get rid of all of the cars in canada that would be a thing that i would do yesterday and i would replace all the roads with like beautiful walking streets and there'd be grassy lanes and we could just put like lots of extra like th like not like high-rise you know housing but like condensed housing where it's like three three-story walk-ups or whatever but with you know elevators for accessibility and, and, and <laughs> don't you condemn us to a life of three-story walk-ups <laughs> that would be the one evil thing I would do as a dictator. Is I want everyone to be. Kyla's able been to... an imaginary dictator for ten seconds, and she's already got a revolt on her hands. <laughs> I want I want everyone to be able to like have access to the outdoors within our urban spaces and be able to like walk down a lane or roll down a lane if you're in a wheelchair and and not have to worry about like a car. Well, as you know, in Ottawa, like just honking in protest constantly, <laughs> like or just the fumes that are like you walk down the street and it's just noxious fumes, and it just oh replace our roads with housing and and trees. Just do it, <laughs> and then we can all live closer to each other. So nice, and like a train system, like yeah, oh, trams, <laughs> oh, trains. Yes. <laughs> we are all about trams. <laughs> the thing I miss most about Toronto is the streetcars, even though they used to break down constantly. <laughs> Yeah, but we would spend money on them now because I'm in charge. And then we obviously we would have like one road that would be for <laughs> ambulances and maybe taxis if you're running late. That's it. But there there wouldn't be anywhere to be late to. Oh, yeah, because we would have dismantled capitalism because I'm a dictator and we don't need an economy when you have a dictator. <laughs> So everyone could just take siestas and <laughs> and do and do things that they care about. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, I would reward people for doing hard jobs, obviously. Okay, this is getting out of hand now. Let's uh, <laughs> I'll I'll write down my my five year plan and I'll come back to you guys. <laughs> this is so nice and positive. I almost don't want to ask my next question, which is <laughs> Can you can you tell us a little bit about disability poverty in Canada? <laughs> 
Yeah. So, I mean, the number one issue for disabled people is the chronic poverty that people remain condemned to. I think it's like important to remember that when capitalism was like coming into itself, its first policy decision was like, okay, so there's going to be disabled people who can't work, but we have to make it such that they always are making less than the lowest earning person. That's where we are today. There's this myth that people will, what, fake disabilities if you could make a living wage, like, or just like, just if you could live on a disability income, then people will just like pretend it's like the welfare state and the reasoning behind like not giving people UBI. It's like people just won't work then. Totally, totally. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's always been th- this fight for the right not to work. And I think that that's like something that's really important. And, It's really shocking, I think, the efforts we will go to to maintain this chronic state of poverty across across the country. I mean, when the liberals came into office, they're like, we're going to fix disability poverty. Obviously have not done anything. They like put forward a motion to create a study about it. So, you know, effective. Um, But in the time that they put forward that motion and it was like slowly brewing, um, they made changes to the state policies such that if you are disabled but not near death, you're able to access medical assistance in dying. And this went through as fast as possible. All the while, people were still like really fighting for their right to live. And so we've seen this like a lot is that disabled people are accessing medical assistance and dying because they're either condemned to sites of institutionalization that they know they'll never be able to leave or are condemned to poverty and don't have access to any of the supports that they need. Neoliberalism has ha- done such a fucking doozy on all of us. And and so like the wait list to get access to anything, whether it's housing, as we were just talking about, but also like to get access to a mobility aid or to get access to physiotherapy or like, God forbid, a pain clinic or a doctor who will give you a prescription for the pain medication you require. Like all of those things are impossible in our current system and like maintain disability poverty, but also like make it such that if you are a disabled person living in poverty, it's really difficult to survive and it's really difficult to get anything you need. And we know that like the disability benefit that's supposed to come through, like it's obviously not going to do whatever it takes because we're so embedded in the system. And like, as I was saying before, if you live in an institution, you're condemned to an even like lower state of disability poverty where you don't even have access to the bare minimum number of dollars. And it it's so difficult to break. And I think everyone's like, well, we just need to expand our employment so that more people can access employment. And then like, If you look at people trying to access employment, the number one employer of people labeled with intellectual disabilities still to this day is subminimum wage labor. Like that is the option. I thought you were going to say Walmart. (laughs) No, it's worse than Walmart, Kyla. It's worse than Walmart. (laughs) You didn't know that there could be a place worse, but I, (laughs) I am here to share horrors. This is um what sheltered workshops is that what you're talking about here? Yeah, so sheltered workshops are segregated congregated workplaces for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Sometimes they're called training programs or employment training, but really they're only ever called that because it allows you to bypass laws and policy still allows for sub minimum wage labor for people. So What that means is that people labeled with disabilities are generally coerced into working in places where they're making either like a nickel or a penny per product that they're assembling. So it's often those things that like we pretend are all automated, but like are not at all. And so one of the examples that I think is like really clear is the use of poppies, Poppies are assembled by people in prisons and people in 
sheltered workshops and you're paid one penny per poppy that you put together. And so at that rate, you'd have to be assembling like a million poppies an hour to be making just minimum wage. But that's the only work that you're given access to. Poppies are the most ironic usage of that because they're like symbols of how people have died for freedom or become disabled in the war. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's generally like what products that are made in sheltered workshops, how they're marketed is like, you're doing something good and supporting something good. And like, thanks for doing that. Uh, you rock. <laughs> and, and, and they'll generally say like, this product is in support of people with disabilities. And then you like look at how it's supposed to be in support and the organization made $100,000 from this and are paying people pennies for the labor that they're doing. So they're just accumulating capital and stealing it from more and more people and using those people that they're stealing it from to sell the product in the first place. That's so gross. Why is that still allowed? (laughs) (laughs) You you know, great question. (laughs) So like in some places, they're sneaky. Like in BC, it's not technically allowed, but social enterprises and social enterprise-esque places um, still exist where you're like, oh, I'm buying a candle to support someone who's homeless who made this candle. That's nice. And then you like look into it and it's like, I paid $15 for this and the person who made it got a dollar. And so you see like, it's just like this cycle of exploitation that we think we're like, you know, being good people for doing, but like are not at all. It's just, it's just this part of the system that like, again, normalizes the incarceration and confinement of people with disabilities. Are these programs like are they universally paying like sub minimum wage or are there some programs um, that are good or am I just inadvertently greenwashing right now? (laughs) (laughs) So sheltered workshops are not good. I, I would say that there's no good sheltered workshop. The other thing, like the way that they're kind of like washed over is like, They say that they're training or preparing people to work in the workplace. But if you look at it, like the the vast majority of people who work there work there for more than 10 years. And so it's like a lifetime of quote unquote training. Why would they say that you're ready to work in the workplace if they're making money off of you when you're not? It's like the world's worst internship. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Lifelong internship. So how how is like as a consumer, how would I know whether something that I'm buying is made using this? Is it usually accompanied by that kind of messaging or? Yeah. So, I mean, I would re- be really like skeptical of social enterprises, I think in general, and like what, how they're trying to profit off of people and off of um, a, like systems of oppression. Yeah. Generally they'll have like the little tag that's like this product supports. And then it can, it usually takes like, it takes me like two minutes to figure out if it's a sheltered workshop um, because I'm like, gotcha. <laughs> I am good at finding the worst things. So everyone just email or tweet Megan if you're not sure and she'll confirm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. I'll just be like, I'll just tweet at Megan. I'll be like, is this evil? And every time she's going to be like, yes, Kyla, just <laughs> if, if worried it is. <laughs> and it's it it often will like show up in places where you're like oh are you fucking serious where i'm like a pickle company i like that's like cool and local and like pays their workers uh living wage and and then you like look and they're like we are so grateful to partner with this organization to use their garlic scapes and you like look at the thing and you're like for me (laughs) these pickles were so good yeah so is it is it like there's one big organization that does sheltered workshops no no okay (laughs) you just know the big ones (laughs) there's a few where i'm like i have my eyes on you mostly because they're in ottawa and i'm like side eye (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) thank you for knowing that i was doing that even though i'm not So then is uh, is the idea like, I don't know, 
people aren't just tools for their labor and maybe we shouldn't worry so much about getting full employment for people with disabilities? We should focus on like UBI or something? Or what do you think is the solution? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that UBI is a great starting place um, because disabled people right now have to go through so many hoops to just be able to get access to like disability supports that often like the type of disability you might ha- be, have to be able to access the support is like impossible to get because of the disability you have, um, where it's like this bad cycle. And UBI is like really like straightforward, you know, you're getting access to it right away. But I don't think it, it would result in enough of the, so- the solutions where it's still like we still need access to housing. We still need access to supports. We still need access to pharmaceuticals and mobility aids. Right. <laughs> that whole healthcare isn't really universal thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If our whole system is like fake universal, it's like I feel like our show, Kristen, is like a like a gateway to to communism. You know, like how you're on YouTube <laughs> and you start watching a video and and it's like a like a right wing talking head and then you watch another video and before too long you're like a white supremacist who believes in flat earth i feel like we're that like left yeah we sell people head. on consumerism <laughs> it always ends up with yeah yeah and then and then they go like a little deeper and a little deeper and then before too long they're like uh communism and i'm like well, i'm okay with that <laughs> like, you can just say communism it's okay <laughs> yeah you do the whole like pull back thing <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the deeper you go, the further you get into the left-wing conspiracy theories and then before long you're Except it's not conspiracy theories, it's just like data supported policy. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> universal healthcare, universal housing, <laughs> access to living lives for people who can't, you know, benefit the working system. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> I feel good now about never getting poppies because I feel like they're a waste of plastic and bad for the planet. (laughs) But a much better reason is the slave wages. Yes, now I know. Yeah, now I have two reasons not to buy poppies and I can feel even less guilty about not wearing one on (laughs) November 11th, the one day where you use this stupid thing. Yeah, honestly, I was like... When I when I was like reading about poppies, I was like, "This brings everything I love together: my hatred <laughs> of imperialist violence, carceral system." Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's a great intersection of the horrors of Canada. Oh, and it's just, it is such a perfect symbol of the horrors of Canada because it's wrapped up in this thing that looks so good on the surface. And then you peel it back a little bit and you're like, oh, it's evil. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I got a lot of that when I was traveling. People were like, oh, Canada is so great. And I'm like, yeah, we put on a really, we wear a really nice outfit on the outside. Best at marketing probably in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very successful. (laughs) Okay. Let's say we've got a listener that's been through all of this, is like super pissed about the poppies and is on board with your vision. What should they do? (laughs) Great question. There's a few things. Number one's going to be embarrassing, but I'll say, listen to my podcast. Love it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes. What's the name of your podcast again? It's called Invisible Institutions, and it it goes goes a lot deeper on lots of this stuff. I I know I'm like super nerdy, but I get even nerdier. And then I think the second thing is like really getting involved in mutual aid and abolitionist organizing wherever you are. Like it's pretty obvious that we're not going to we don't have a system that's going to support the people that are currently incarcerated or at risk of being institutionalized. And so we got to create those systems ourselves. A big part of that is, is challenging our own thinking about what independence and interdependence and success is. And I think like the journey towards unpacking internalized ableism and like its intersections with capitalism are like really amazing journeys to go on that require work and and thought. And I would like definitely recommend reading more disability theory, politics, writing, children's books. They're all great. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially since a lot of the people that we're talking about today are hidden from view. So there's a lot of I mean, I've I don't I don't know anything uh, because 
people who are being institutionalized are completely out of sight for me and I don't know what their needs are. I haven't spoken to very many people who are experiencing that. So all of my information is coming like third hand. And when your third hand information is coming from the people selling poppies, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, I think that that, that is another great thing that people can do is like get involved with letter writing for people who are either incarcerated or institutionalized into long-term care homes. Pen pals or letter writing to your government? Yeah. That's awesome. I want to be a pen pal. <laughs> yeah, pen pals are great. I, I mean, also write to your government, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's good. We usually tell people to yell at their member of parliament, so it's nice. Uh, it's nice to be able to say, be a pen pal. That sounds way more fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do both. Do both of those things. Cool. I'll actually, you know what, I'll find some links uh, for, for people and I'll, I'll share them in our, our footnotes so people can maybe check out some places to, to become pen pals. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. And the Abolish Long-Term Care campaign that the Disability Justice Network of Ontario has, um, you can just like fill out your name and then they will send a letter to Parliament for you. So... Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Love it. <laughs> awesome. And then can people find you on Twitter? Sure can. I'm at Pink Cane Red Lip. <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love it. I'll link to that too. <laughs> Amazing. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add that maybe we didn't ask about? No. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a fun chat. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I like how people come on our show. We talk about the darkest things in the world and they're like, this has been fun. And I'm like, has it? <laughs> I've had fun. <laughs> I feel like it's fun for me. And usually the other people are like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> if people want more of how society is evil, they can continue to listen to our podcast. And now they can add yours to their list. And you can find us on Twitter as well at Pullback Podcast. Thank you, Megan, for joining us. This has been really enlightening. I really enjoyed talking about how I would be a dictator. I think I'm going to feature that more because I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> Kristen, beware. <laughs> yeah, Kyla was very ranty today. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's what happens when I record literally five minutes after rolling out of bed. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Megan. I'm, gonna, I'm very excited to check out your show. So looking forward to it. Yeah, Invisible Institutions. Take a listen. 